This is Coda Radio, episode 303 for April 2nd, 2018. Hi everyone, and welcome to Coder Radio, Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly talk show, taking a pragmatic look at the art and business of software development and its related technologies. This episode is brought to you by our two fine sponsors, DigitalOcean and Linux Academy. I'll tell you more about those sponsors as this here show goes on. Why me? Thank you so much for asking. My name is Chris, but more importantly, the man who's ready to give us all a lesson, to teach us a little something, it's our host, Mr. Dominic. Hello, Mike! Misa's so happy to be back in Naboo. I'm a little sad though, because Jar Jar doesn't do well at the end. <laughs> you know what? No, in our version on Coda Radio, Jar Jar always does well in the end. You know, I always like the conspiracy uh, theory where Jar Jar was actually like the Uber Sith Lord. Oh yeah, no, that's that is absolutely. Now, did we ever actually put a link to that whole theory in the show notes? Because that is a solid theory. Someone sent it into the subreddit several months okay. ago. Okay, okay, yeah, that's pretty good. That was that was pretty good. Um, you know, Mr. Dominic, we're back on our regular time here on Monday, and I have to start the show out with a PSA. You know how I do. I got to keep everybody informed. Just a brief reminder, we have the new website, coder.show, which includes a new RSS feed. So if you've been having troubles getting the show, which I actually haven't had any reports of that, thankfully, but coder.show slash RSS, you can pop that into your podcast catcher directly. I'm just putting it out there right there, PSA, top of the show, you know, because um, the thing is, like, if they're not getting the episode, how do you get the word out there? How do you tell people? So what you hope is that maybe they just go to the website and listen directly. And then I tell them right here at the beginning of the show. And then they realize the error of their ways and go update their feed. So that's why we mention it right here at the top of the show. But that's not what we're here today to talk about. No, we have much to get into. We have feedback. We have Hoopla. Mike's got an update on Office versus no Office. We're going to talk a little bit, too, about focus in the software industry. And then towards the end of the show, it will be a salute to Sun and specifically a little bit of Java I think we touched on a note last week. That's probably the one bit of feedback that I didn't actually capture was how many people tweeted us saying that was actually pretty legit or they're also responsible for X. Jed, I thought, made a great tweet. Like, here's all of the other things you didn't even mention that Sun is responsible for. And it's just mind boggling. So that was uh, interesting to see how that resonated with people, huh? Uh, I'm I'm glad that the good news of Sun is spreading like wildfire. <laughs> just Just a few years late. <laughs> <laughs> it would have been nice if it had happened, you know, several years ago. But yeah, hey. maybe like around 2011. Uh, so yeah, just about. Before we get there, though, let's do some follow-up from last week's episode. Patrick wrote in and said, guys, I think you're overvaluing those emails where you can see Google twil- twirling their mustache and planning to rip off uh, uh, Sun. I'm actually, I guess it would have been Oracle. It's, it's confusing. It's actually Sun. Anyways, we'll get to that too. Uh, but Patrick writes in and says, I wanted to make one small comment about the whole Oracle versus Google thing. I think you're both giving too much weight to those emails from Google because it turns out under 17 U.S. Code 107, fair use is defined as four factors. And in there, the infringer's state of mind is not one of those factors. Um If there is finding of infringement, the emails might make a difference in determining damages, but copyright infringement does not 
require intent. So he says, you know, <laughs> it might not matter that they were just talking about wholesale wholesale copying and dealing it in the courts later, because when it comes to copyright, it's just about the copyright and what it covers. It's not about intent. What do you does that does that does that click with you? What do you think? I mean, he might be right. Um, he could be right. I mean, this is the whole we're not lawyers part. Yeah, really. As is often the case with the law, sometimes there are things that like make sense, but that's not how the law works. One could think of, you know, like software patent lawsuits. Uh, I don't know, right? Like this, this is. I think. I think. In fact, this is going to be. If what he's saying is right, which I have no reason to think it's not, that is probably going to be a crux of the final defense, right? It seems. It, it, I mean, the defense is weird, right? So we thought we were infringing on their IP and stealing, but it turns out we technically didn't. Yeah. Which I don't think that's true, though, right? I don't think it's the case that... I mean, they literally copied and pasted things. Yeah, I mean... Right? That, so emails or no emails. So. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I, I just, I, to me, the emails just like make it so much worse, right? Like, yeah. that's that's where the emails come in. Um, yeah. yeah, it is. Yeah, I mean... It, I mean yeah. I guess even even if it's not a, about how it actually impacts the decision, although I was, I mean, the reason why I thought this was going to come back up again was because of those emails. But even that aside, uh, it still does sort of betray the intent, at least to those that are those of us that are just sitting back and watching this whole thing unfold from the uh, rafters. I mean, if it's the case, as uh, as Patrick suggests, that those emails would be used for damages, then that. That seems pretty substantial too. Though, that does, right? yeah, you're right. <laughs> That's I didn't. I didn't. If not they're know not that. relevant yet, they will be. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> so, um, you are uh, enjoying some tasty beer. Beer is, in fact, tasty, and uh, you're not at your office this week. I could tell just by the way it sounds. You're at home right now, aren't you? I'm at home. I'm at my my old home desk. I'm having a. Hialai Indian Pale Ale from Cigar City Brewing right here in Tampa, Florida. Going for it. Going for the uh, IPA highlight. A highlight? You mean high life? Are you talking? High, high a lie. High a lie. Oh, okay. I have no idea what that is then. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, I've never really seen it outside of Florida. I mean, I'm sure. You, you know, so last week we were talking about the, uh, the African beer that you were enjoying. Yeah. I have been enjoying recently. I have gotten back into ciders, and I don't like like the the um, mm. the Angry Orchard cider. Um, that too sweet. It, it's too sweet, and it gives me a gut bomb. But like uh, like a uh, um, I just recently had a sour mango uh, cider with jalapeno in it. It was a ten percent ABV alcohol by volume, and it was great and i don't get that really indigestion kind of gurgly feeling that i tend to have like six hours or you know four hours after i've drank too much beer or or any beer sometimes depending on the beer uh with with the ciders and the sours two different categories but with both of those i'm not getting the downsides that i tend to have after i enjoy myself a beer and uh so i've been trying um pomegranate pomegranate ciders cherry ciders apple ciders like i said mango ciders it's, it's been a really interesting journey recently so you and i have both been having some some nice bubbly some bubbles yeah we've been uh, uh yeah 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 i don't even know what to say no i mean just I, there's really no way to turn this into a segment on the show so it's like no. we, you know not like coffee right because you don't drink actually there is some people who subscribe to the theory that you should develop drunk and then debug sober 
So maybe we could, maybe there's an angle, you know. Are we, are we, are we going to talk about the Balmer Peak? We could have a whole show on the Balmer Peak. <laughs> All right. Well, no, let's continue on. Phil wrote into the show on the Coda Radio subreddit, and he said, um, you know what? We really don't talk about Sun enough. One of the worst things about the whole Oracle versus Google case is how Oracle America get substituted for Sun Microsystems in all of the pleadings, as, of course, it would for legal reasons, um, obscuring the historical fact that it was not Oracle who created all of the technology at issue. It was Sun. And, you know, that is a great point to make right there because we don't know if this is the direction Sun would have gone. We don't know if Sun would have gotten litigious like this. They they may have uh, tried to work something out on the DL on the side with the Googs. We don't really know how that would have gone. Um, the reservation for mobile applications in Sun's otherwise generous listing of desktop and even non-J2E servers uh, used to seem at odd, seemed odd at the time. Sun's open sourcing frenzy starting in 20, uh, 2005, which accumulated with Java in 2006, was born out of desperation, but it just might have worked. Um, he says that he talks about the money a little bit. Oracle swooped in. It would have been better for the rest of us if someone else had bought Sun. IBM even would have been more preferable, but Big Blue had to balance the cost to them uh, once the antitrust regulators would have gotten hold of the deal. That is, Phil, a great, insightful comment. Mm-hmm. Um, and boy, I have so much to say about Sun. Uh, we're not there yet, but when we get to there in the show, I have so much to say. Yeah, I mean, I, I just want to jump in. It, it would also have been more preferable had Sun simply made money. Right? Mm-hmm. I just want to mm-hmm. say that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the but, dot. Yeah, um, you know, I just, so before the show, uh, today I was, uh, looking, I was consuming old sun media. They put a lot of stuff out, but yeah, they really did. Yeah. I came across something not from sun and it's so great. I wonder, oh, I bet you I can't find it here on the fly. Uh, so I came across a video that was next versus sun and the whole sub principle of the argument is that Objective-C, I don't know if they called it Objective-C, but object-oriented programming and the whole programming model on Next was superior to the Sun workstation. And it was a video by Steve Jobs' Next Corporation where they pitted a Sun workstation against a Next workstation and you had to go create an app from scratch. But of course, (laughs) just like totally skewed the results because on the Next side, they had like an interface designer that would write the Objective-C on the back end, like totally had an advantage in this video, clearly biased from the very beginning, produced by the Next folks. But what was fascinating about it was the core principle of their argument was the Next station was better because they had truly object-oriented programming. That was so. If you want to, if you want a little bonus after the, after the show video, go search YouTube for Next versus Sun, and you well, probably forget that was like a major thing, right? Sun was a powerhouse in the yeah. uh, in the workstation, especially area. in the Unix space, right? Especially. Yeah. So uh, that was uh, well. There's a, there's another video on YouTube of Steve Jobs. Uh, it was actually an internal training video he made for his sales guys at Next, trying to explain that if somebody says, "Well, Sun is Unix," we're Unix too, right? Like, oh, really? For, yeah, as like a major like thing that they were trying to push, and that interface builder, uh, which is what it was called until it got yes. merged into Xcode, yes. for a very long time. Right? Isn't that a fascinating thing? Just well, in itself? was right. Was ne- one of Next's major um, pitches. In that it would generate code for you on the UI with, and yep. I mean, anybody who's used any of these tools now, they, it's basic now. What, it's basic now. One thing that's going to be interesting is as we go over some of these older technologies, 
it's it's important to remember that when something is new, it's very radical. Um, like you have to give Next credit; their design paradigm, they're as with many Appley, Steve Jobsy things, they weren't necessarily first. But the uh, the next development flow with Interface Builder and just kind of the way they did everything was actually kind of a big step forward. Unfortunately, yeah. next machines were priced into the stratosphere. Yeah, so, yeah. well, that's yeah. also Steve Jobs' move, isn't it? Well, and Sun had a had a very powerful position in the Unix workstation market. Yes, um, particularly for engineers, and I would argue that Next made the mistake of going after the education market, which is kind of a tough market, right? Because they just don't have that much money. Mm-hmm. Yeah, especially when you have premium prices. All right, well, we do have some hoopla to get into this week, and I don't know if it's going to surprise anyone, but uh, there seems to be a bit of smoke with this fire because before the show, Mike found one news outlet that was reporting, and now I have found a second news outlet that that has confirmed all of the report on their own individual investigation. We'll get to that in just a moment, but first, I want to thank Linux Academy, linuxacademy.com slash coders. That's where you go to sign up for a free seven-day trial, and you support the show. You get all the advanced training tools that you need to increase your skills and encourage critical thinking. You can learn everything about Linux from the core basic way to manipulate the operating system and the file system all the way up to the stuff that's going to make you money. I'll give you an example. They have hands-on scenario-based labs that give you experience on real environments that they spin up as you need them as part of the courseware. If it's AWS, it doesn't matter. They'll spin it up as you need it. Then you SSH in and you get hands-on experience that really teach you how to use this stuff. And they have lots of cloud labs for you to choose from. And this one might be applicable to you. Working with Swift on the server. In this lab, you create new containers with objects using the files provided and you interact with the command line as well as you create, read, and write ACLs on the command line and get a Swift environment in a container running on a Linux server. You choose the distro, the courseware automatically adjusts and the, and the virtual server they spin up adjusts to match what you've chosen. And the greatest thing about it is it tells you right up front, this is going to take you two hours. This is going to take you two hours. You want to manage floating IPs for a server? That'll take you two hours. You want to learn OpenStack, the basic managing of policies? That'll take you two hours. So you can figure out how much time you've got, and you can really dive in. In fact, when you're busy, they have an availability planner that you'll really like. It'll match your availability and help you plan a courseware and a suite of courses and reminders if you need them to stay on top of everything. And when you're ready to go get certifications, they have a series of content and courses that are planned just to help you get ready for those exams. Plus study tools that you can use offline, Android and iOS apps for when you're connected, but portable and mobile, they've got all of it. As well as full-time human beings that are available to help you. linuxacademy.com slash coders. linuxacademy.com slash coders. You go there, you sign up for a free seven-day trial, and you support the show. linuxacademy.com slash coders. Oh, and Chaotic in the chat room just found that uh, video I was talking about, so I will drop a link in the show notes. If you go to coder.show slash, uh, what is this, 303? You can, uh, yeah, it's coder.show slash 303. I'll have a link to that uh, Next versus Sun video that I mentioned. Thank you very much. For grabbing that chaotic, I appreciate that. So let's talk about some hoopla this week, Mr. Dominic. And I don't know, for some reason, there seems to be a bit of uh, fire behind this smoke because CNBC has reported it. And then just before we went on the air, Bloomberg also started reporting that Apple plans to use its own chips in the Mac 
starting in 2020, replacing Intel. Yeah. So this has been something that's been rumored for at least a year now, Oh, yeah. Right? Oh, yeah. And they, they, they started this on iOS uh, some years ago, right? All the A processors and that, by the way, that W chip that we've never talked about in the show in the AirPods is actually kind of super impressive. And mm. if, uh, if you wanted to steal something, Samsung, you might consider that. Yeah. I mean, what do you think, right? I mean, it's obviously, it looks like it's going to be an ARM architecture from, from what we're hearing. And we just, Chris and I just got this news today, right? I was watching CNBC as one does in the middle of the day. And, uh, Chris was presumably listening to it on his home pod. Oh my god. I hate you. <laughs> every episode, every episode I'm getting in it. You are indeed. <laughs> you bastard. You know Now who now Bloomberg's report, so Bloomberg yeah, now Mark Gurman. Okay, you said they're independent source, so they're not just re-reporting CNBC's report. Right, exactly. Gurman went out and got uh, got it himself. Uh and Ian King also over at Bloomberg. Uh, it says Apple's I mean, planning to use its own chips and Mac computers beginning as early as 2020, replacing Intel processors, according to people familiar with the plans. Now, um, they say it's in early development stages, but it becomes it's coming as part of a larger, larger, a larger uh, strategy to make all of Apple's devices, including Macs, iPhones and iPads, work more similar and seamlessly together. And they asked the people familiar with the matter asked not to be identified, obviously. The project has been approved by executives and will likely result in a multi-step transition. So maybe that's why the MacBook Air is still hanging around. You know, um, you hear you hear also rumors about uh, unifying iOS and 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 Mac development, so that way you could uh, sort of use some of the same yep. APIs and the 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 not so secret Marzipan project. Yep. And then you also look at things like uh, the uh, Surface Book and uh, Convergence. There still is a drive for Convergence. The only way that Apple could truly offer a iPad that can also turn into a Mac is if they unify the OS. And if they unify the OS and the apps that run on that OS, they're also going to have to unify the CPU architectures to have it be as truly tight and as performative as Apple generally requires. I mean, obviously, you could do this with multiple different processor architectures, depending on how much you extract, extract that son of a bitch. But the reality is that's not how Apple rolls. They're going to want to get close as close to metal performance as possible. Well, and they have their own yeah. CPUs and they're fast, you know, you they're could, fast. and you could put like four or five or six or a dozen of them in a Mac pro. Right. And then all of a sudden it is faster than an Intel system. So I, I, th I think you're almost looking at it backward. Um, th I, what I would see coming first is, I mean, what are we at? A 10, a 11 right now? We're at a 11, I believe. Right. Let's say there's some like a 15 or whatever that goes into the MacBook One and the MacBook Air if the MacBook Air doesn't get killed, right? Meanwhile, if you go up to the pros, you're still getting an i5 or an i7. But as we progress through the 2020s, we're going to see, like you're suggesting, more and more um, ARM processors taking over the line all the way up, and then they'll start hitting like the Mac Mini, right? will probably also be an ARM machine. Um, the low-end iMac, up and up and up to you hit the iMac Pro and whatever the Mac Pro is going to look like. I would be surprised if the Mac Pro and the iMac Pro didn't remain Intel or some sort of weird hybrid. Yeah, and the, especially the, reason, at least the, least, the, the last systems to transition, right? They might well, do the, the iMac, because the iMac was the first machine to go Intel. But the Mac Pro, the MacBook the problem, Pro... 
Yeah, but a, but a super common use case for particularly higher end iMacs is folks who like do development and have to dual boot Windows. Well, but now you have the iMac and the iMac Pro. So you leave the iMac Pro Intel and you make the iMac ARM. Right, that's what I'm saying, the low end iMac. Oh, yeah, okay, yeah. Yeah, okay gotcha. Yeah. All right. Um, but you would still need Intel machines unless, I mean, remember Rosetta, yep. which was kind of a different transition, right? Carbon to Cocoa. Um, Apple has always been good at pulling one of these let's call it compatibility layers out of their hat, right? I just worry about all the professional use cases, particularly for devs who like just buy the most expensive MacBook Pro or, or iMac that they can afford hmm. and then load that baby up with Windows and like various Linux containers and VMs. Do right? you suppose the canary in the coal mine, like the first, the first indication that this is really happening is it's got to be like Apple 2019. Apple's up on stage at WWDC and they announce Xcode for iPad. That's how you know, because right now the only way to make uh, an app for all of these millions of iOS devices is by buying a Macintosh running Mac OS using Xcode. And until they change that, they can't kill the Mac. Yeah, but I mean, well, okay, so maybe you could get a watered down Xcode on iPad, but that's not going to be a great development experience. No, I mean, they've, I mean, but it, that's got to be that. That's got to be the sign that this is coming. I mean, until they have that. Until they have a, you you can't you can't have people running development environments in in, in x86 emulation uh, on on ARM Macintoshes like that's not going to be nobody's going to buy that so they've they've got to solve that problem before they solve the Mac Intel problem don't you think like that's got to be step one is actual usable really good Xcode on iOS and then when so iOS devices can start producing their own apps, then you've really got independence. So Xcode has gone, um, since Swift came out, through a number of major refactors and upgrades, right? SourceKit, which is brand new, is the, uh, well, not brand new, but it's about two years old, is like the new source rendering and all that kind of fun stuff engine. What I think we will see is just the existing Xcode, as it has been, being piecemeal upgraded and changed, right? So that possibly it could fit on an ARM architecture, but I almost think I almost think that would be the last thing they do because Xcode is a beast, right? I mean, it's been around for a long time. Originally, it was a product called Code Warrior. Yeah. Um, and I, you think they reboot? Uh, well, well, I'll look it up for next week. But my understanding of the changes is that they did not take Xcode down to the studs and rewrite it. They just um, they changed the editor and the editing engine, which is now called SourceKit. And they added a bunch of stuff for like continuous integration and like GitHub integration. Yeah, you know things to basically keep up with JetBrains and Microsoft. But they haven't. Uh, yeah, they haven't rebooted it. Right. I, I now if they did, well, first of all, they could release an Xcode for iPad that is just like something completely different. Right. I mean, a lot of apps are like that. Um, but yeah, I, I I would not be surprised if when when the year before we see an ARM Mac that's actually suitable for dev that we don't see like a complete upgrade of Xcode. So uh, Chaotic, again with the handy link, uh, points us to a job posting at Apple for a silicon validation engineer with Linux driver and kernel development experience. Mm, wonder what that's for. That could be because uh, somebody, and they're looking for somebody in the Austin area, so if that's you... <laughs> <laughs> That's you. Go look this up. But um, 
They, uh, they, yeah, they want five plus years of embedded Linux kernel development experience, solid knowledge of Linux kernel internals from processor scheduler, memory management, concurrency, synchronization, memory allocation, the file systems, extensive device driver development and support, uh, strong debugging skills in the kernel context, um, ported, maintained Linux distribution for a platform, uh, familiar with ARM architecture is a plus. I bet it is. <laughs> I it's, wonder. It's weird oh, that they're saying Linux and not BSD, though. Yeah, it is. One hundred and twenty thousand a year, too. By the way, now um, this also could just simply be somebody to help them with uh, their data center in Austin, right? They could have Linux systems in the iCloud data center that they need help with. It doesn't mean yeah. anything. Mm, kernel. I mean that. Or, or uh oh, the new hot Linux distro. Mac OS. <laughs> Running on ARM now. processors. The It'll Aqua GUI on spin. top of a GNU kernel. <laughs> I mean, yes. a GPL kernel in a GNU user land. <laughs> yeah, right. That'll be Good the night, day. Darwin. Yeah. <laughs> Bye, Darwin. Uh, I hope they don't do this, to be honest with you. I mean, I actually shouldn't say that, but it, it sure made uh, the Mac a lot more fun when they, which, when they switched over to x86. So if they switch it over to uh, frickin' uh, ARM again, or, you know, a different... Not ARM again, but they were at risk before. And if they go to ARM yeah. now, I'd I think be a they're definitely going to do it because one of their big things is thinness and battery life, right? Yeah. And ARM just just the power performance is yeah in terms of uh, energy uses right significantly better. And you know, um, if they're starting over with iOS on the Mac, and you're using uh, the App Store, so everything's coming through the App Store, and you control like with the App Store, like they can they can mandate that people support certain CPU features if they want to, uh, and they do currently uh, break apps out based on what CPU features they do in fact support. So they could just build upon that model and say, all right, well, you want to write for the Mac? It's going to be all of your same workflow for iOS with you know different design. And yet, because you have to accommodate a mouse and keyboard and 16 uh, A11 processors. And uh, to, to support that, you know, you just add this line to your apps or you just check this box in Xcode. And now you support um, all 16 A11 cores in the new iMac. And well, that's basically how the change from ARM 6 to ARM 7 to ARM 7S yeah, on iOS works. That's, worked, that's right? exactly what I was thinking of. Yep, okay. exactly. Yep. And let's not forget bytecode, which. Yep. We really don't talk about a lot, but bytecode right. is basically this weird Weeble translation layer yep. um, that makes a lot more sense if you have two completely different platforms, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I could, I could totally, I could totally see them doing that, um, but uh, I think they would lose a shit ton of professional users. Well, it, it, it would worry me because, uh, really, for a lot of developers, I think the main appeal of Mac is it's an extremely stable. Yeah. Um, visually pleasing uh, BSD box. Yeah, you right? you get your Unix tools. You have SSH. You have Bash. Uh, right. You you could, but at the same time, you can still run Photoshop. You can still run Microsoft Office. And you, and you can like yell at somebody at at the Apple Store if something's wrong. And and their hardware tends to be, although this isn't as much the case anymore. But back in the day, when people were jumping ship to to Mac, you know they had they had pretty competitive hardware, depending on how much money you wanted to spend. Uh, that's damn keyboards. That's less the case now. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but uh, I feel like that bleeding would really accelerate if they switched to ARM because a lot of people are on Macs writing applications or backend applications at least. Well, for Linux, right? For, for x86 Docker, for... Linux, right? Yeah, x86 systems. Yeah, and doesn't make a huge difference. 
but it makes a difference. There is, you know, it's less convenient. There's more of a disparity between what you're building on and what you're running on. Right. It's generally good if your testing environment, at least your local, even your local testing environment, looks like your production environment. Yes. Right? And, and that's and why I, I think I, Sputniks are selling as well as they are. I think so, too. And one thing that would scare me, too, is like those of us who occasionally have to whip open a Windows VM and do stuff. Yeah. 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 That would be dog slow. And that is a huge use case in uh, yeah. on Macs in the enterprise where, the, where it's a predominant window shop. But, you know, you're the guy with a Mac or a gal with a Mac. You, a lot of times you get away with that because you've got a VM. I don't know about that. I just I, it seems like they would be really kind of saying goodbye to a certain class of user. But it also seems inevitable. So, all right, well, we'll see. let's, let's, uh, let's keep moving along. Let's keep going. Uh, I want to talk about sun. I also want to talk about focus. So what do you say? We should, we start with uh, focus of the software industry focusing in focusing in. Yeah. All right. Let's so do it. about focus. 250 some odd episodes ago, we had a talk about generalizing, right? The generalist programmer, which is kind of what I am. Um, and actually a few people I know. And we really made a good case as to why one might want to be a generalist. But let's take that and rip that down a little bit. Is there an advantage to focusing, and I mean focusing in multiple layers here, one technology-wise? Is it good to focus on a core-related group of technologies? And is it also good to focus on like doing one thing? And let me give you an example. Being really good at developing applications for you know the uh, medical industry, let's say. Oh, okay. Uh, and that's my question. So you're saying been, industry. You're saying you're not necessarily saying like language. I'm saying both, right? Oh, language okay. focus, because you know we get people all the time emailing in. Uh, in fact, just like uh, I forgot the guy's name, but last week, right? I I know some Java, and I'm looking at other things. And I think we have traditionally come down on the side of it's not necessary, nor is it probably beneficial to hyper focus, right? Yeah, I would still stand by that. Would you? yes hyper focus i agree um uh a high degree of focus um maybe that's where we disagree uh okay you know i don't i don't know i people hate it when i do this but just to draw a parallel to me right now with what i'm doing with the network uh um you know we're making a lot of changes right now um coder.show and uh, there is some people who are not getting what they used to get. And what I realized is, and they're upset, uh, you know, and what I realized is, is that um, I should have never done it that way. Um, I am sort of now paying a cost. I've upset a certain base of my, I guess, in what would be customers in your parlance, uh, but for mine as listeners, I've upset a certain base that, uh, you know, like doesn't have a thing that they used to have anymore. And if I had been more focused, if I had been more um, aware of what the product was that I was actually creating and who the, um, I guess, customer was, then I never, ever would have done that stuff to begin with. So I wouldn't be taking it away from them right now. Like I, I, I was making a product and I guess, again, selling a product, if you will, uh, that I never actually really thought about. I just because I could, I started doing it. And now people, now that I, now that I'm refocusing and I'm focusing on what's sustainable, what's the best product possible and what I personally want to make, I'm realizing that I have to stop that product. And those people are upset because they like, it's like they keep getting their special thing taken away now. And I feel really bad about it because it's my fault. 
and I should have never done it in the first place to build up their expectations. So I don't know, like it's like it depends if you have like existing customers that are that are expecting something from you constantly, and then you realize that shit, that's not what we're supposed to be making anymore. You know what I'm saying? That like makes a, that makes a ton of sense. Um, yeah, and I would say right. So I, I'm not sure exactly what you're referring to, but let me give you an example. Like I could have in the past, like focused on like app development, right? Like iOS app development. Yeah, and become really, really good at iOS app development. And I, I feel I'm pretty good at app development, but some of the newer like like testing integrations in Xcode, because I didn't go that way, right? I was always looking for cross-platform testing solutions. I'm finding now that I've been asked to pick them up a little bit, very tough to get up to speed with. Oh. Um, I also find kind of taking your point more, you know, I used to have a way that will code for food, right? Like, will develop software for anybody. That, I think, has actually been a disadvantage. Yeah. And because in a lot of ways, you end up having to learn the domain space, and you don't, you don't accrue any kind of assets in any one uh, vertical or field, mm. right? You end up, okay, we're doing something in pharma, so now we have to figure out, you know, what do all these terms mean? Okay, now we're doing something like energy, right? Whatever the spaces are. Right. Where, uh, that, now, to back to that, if you just focused on medical and say, you know, it was five or eight years into you doing just medical, the advantage there would be not only would all of that stuff be second nature to you, although you'd be totally bored as, as hell. So I'm not, I'm, you know, there's downsides. But not only would that, all that stuff be totally second nature to you, but, um, you know, you start to build word of mouth marketing at that point when you've really been in one particular area for a while. Yeah. And I think also you could potentially eliminate some of the uh, kind of lower end competition who is just basically competing with you on price. Yeah, right. Yeah. 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 Because you have uh, so a breaking, breaking, breaking news, Chris. Oh, yeah. Plural site. The uh, coding trading uh, website is filing for an IPO. It looks like. Oh, that's speaking of focus let's uh let's learn everything in the world yeah yeah it is tough because uh when i was in it uh i was a generalist and uh i i managed to specialize in my generalist so because i was the guy who knew how to make the windows servers talk to the linux servers and the linux servers talk to the windows servers and the macs talk to all of it uh, when you had a mixed network, I was the guy because I didn't stay with Windows. I, my initial IT training, 100% was super Microsoft-focused. It was um, trial courseware that Microsoft was running here in Arlington, Washington, 20 years ago, 25 years ago. And it was networking essentials by Microsoft. So, of course, it talked extensively about the new NetBuoy protocol and the antiquated IPX protocol. And it talked about how to set up TCP IP with a Wins server. Because, of course, you needed a Windows Internet Name Service server on your network. And it was... Who doesn't need that? Right. And then it was NT4. And it was administering NT4. And then it became NT5 before they called it Windows 2000. And it was super, super, super Microsoft-focused. So I went in with this complete and total 
perspective from Microsoft. Cisco does this too. Other companies do this. They write all the training material, so they write it all as if they're the only company in the world that exists. And when I got out into the real world, I very quickly realized that there was other solutions that worked really, really well. And so I started working with those. Like I didn't stay loyal to that Microsoft way of thinking. I didn't, I didn't commit to that and just double down and do everything Microsoft because that's what I knew. I was I was open to to well how could Linux work as a proxy server to help with our networking issues? You know, I was open to these ideas and so then I began to learn that well how can Linux do file services and pretend like it's a Windows file server? How does Mac actually edit video? And so I I sort of got deep enough to really understand those things and make them all work together. But later on in my IT career, I, I caught back up with with a couple of individuals, one guy in particular, who was just a monster, who uh, did the same exact course that I did, except for he stayed with Cisco. So uh, he learned IT according to Cisco. And he had like, at the time, he was like one of like, 30 guys in the whole US that had a certain Cisco certification and he went all in and he just totally focused on Cisco and it was if you want a network he's a he's a excellent person to build a network as long as you're using 100% Cisco gear he will build the best network you've ever seen as long as it's all Cisco gear and he was making he was pulling down $135,000 a year back in you know uh 2005 2004 and so he, I at the at the meantime, you know, was maybe pulling down a salary of one hundred and fifteen thousand or one hundred and ten thousand a year. He was clearly making a lot more than me and was on a trajectory to make a lot more because within six months he got hired by another company making two hundred thousand dollars a year, and he was just raking it in. He got a beautiful house and a beautiful new car, and I'm sitting here watching this guy going like, "Well, shit, maybe I, maybe I, maybe I fucked up because." I sort of played all the games instead of just playing one game really good. And the guy that played one game really good now, he's getting hired for it. Um, and then the network, what, and then, what, what if, but then the industry, what, just to, to end the story, then then the industry shifted. And yeah, I, I was going to ask. You. Yeah. And now he's not nearly as coveted. And because he only knows that stuff, he's, he's got one vertical he's super deep on. He's just got to move around from shops that still have this massive investments in Cisco, which exist, but... Uh, you know, he, he didn't learn anything new. And so when there was a company that had a Nortel system or whatever, like he couldn't work there. And whereas myself, I, I sort of, I sort of became the guy that could go in and learn a whole network within a week and, 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 and then rebuild it. And it meant knowing all of the systems. And so in a weird way, in the very, very end, I feel like I came out ahead because I knew I knew I knew a whole wide range of systems, and I could just roll with the punches in the direction the market eventually went. Whereas he he sort of rode a trend wave for a while, but then like all waves, it eventually fizzled out, and and now he's just sort of stuck with these with these essential essentially these these backgrounds that are still applicable, but becoming less so. So long term, I think the jury's still out. See, I, I, I've kind of changed my tune a little on this. I think in general, it is better to be a generalist. I realize that sentence structure is stupid. Um, but it, it doesn't. So I, I'm thinking about some of the stuff we're going to talk about too. It's on 
things tend to move in roughly five year cycles in the industry. Okay. Right. Okay. I'll, I'll and let, let's not, we can quibble over the number, yeah. but yeah, yeah. let's use five as a simple number to work with. And like, I had a really good advantage because I made a lucky bet on iOS. Right. That cycle came and went. Then it's kind of, you know, we're in the space where a lot of things are vying to be the next big thing. And I think some things did do it. Um, but you have to, how can I say this? Like right now, I think AI and robotics is going to be huge, mm. right? I think we're at the beginning of that. Yeah, okay. I think the uh, chatbot thing is is going to get better, but that's going to be like the the appetizer platter to, to real AI, right? Sure. And really, AI, you know, I kind of think about AI, IoT, and robotics. are at, It's actually kind of like a scale, right? AI chatbots are the lowest, lowest of the low because um, they're really the simplest form of AI, even though they're not... A good one isn't really that simple to make, but they are relatively simple, right? You move up into more of a generalized AI, which we don't really have yet. I mean, uh, the... The, the lady tube, uh, mm, let's just say, very, yeah, it's that's still right. early days, though. It's still early days, but but I think you know, if anybody's going to do that, it's it's probably going to be uh, Uncle Jeff, right? Mm, not not Sergey, no, I don't think so. Um, and there's lots of reasons for that we could go into, but I, I think actually the Google, uh, Google Assistant has just not gotten the penetration, even though they're on at most new Android phones, they don't seem to have the mind share or the interest. Oh, uh, for sure, yeah. Yeah, that, that that Amazon's managed to get. Then the next step is like, and, and I would even argue like those tubes are actually IoT devices, right? Mm-hmm. But your, your IoT work would be your gateway drug into pure robotics. Okay. Um, I, that makes sense. Which is a very holistic way to look at the current tech scene. But eventually what's going to happen is the bottom of that ladder is going to get cut, right? People who climb it are going to cut it and commoditize it. Let me give you a really easy example from, from the days of apps. The first step for apps is doing like a really simple app for a restaurant. Now, Apple's rules have recently changed that, but that was like the first thing. Well, eventually companies got smart and came around and said, hey, we'll sell you a template app for 5000 bucks, right? Right effectively destroying that market for new developers yeah. who then had to move, right? And you end up in a situation of people competing on price. I don't know what the next big thing is. In a lot of ways, I think one of the primary problems with this era is that because chatbots and digital assistants are not easily monetized by independent developers, we almost don't have another big cycle. Even though we obviously do from a technology perspective, but we, it, the benefits are not accruing to small players like they did. Like we, we talked about it on the episode for the 10th anniversary of iOS, but it is true, right? The the app, let's call it App Revolution, really did establish and uh, frankly support a bunch of small businesses. Yeah, where chatbots and digital assistants kind of aren't right. We're, we're there are like shops that will build like I I see like a dedicated, which I find amazing, but dedicated Echo development shops. The problem with that is your market for potential customers is pretty low because there isn't the entrepreneurial activity behind it, the, the uh, venture capital or, or even people just like cracking open their 401k because there's really no way to monetize that without building this entire gigantic system of a service, 
Yeah. Yeah. And not to mention, not to mention just like discoverability is totally different mm -hmm. and uh, user demand and use case for these are, is totally, totally different. And but, the platforms are immature. Yeah. I would submit to you that the App Store is not in itself an invention. It is based on really good CDN technology. It's based on Apple trying out the iTunes store selling music for a decade before they oh, launched sure. the App Store. Uh, so it, it took all of this plumbing to get in place before we had something that actually could pay developers. That might be what we're seeing now. You have the different platforms that are kind of coming together. You have AI from different vendors. You have all these different services that are sort of kind of solidifying now. And uh, it's almost like you, so somebody just needs to build now a product on top of all of it. You know, just like the App Store was built on top of um, Akamai and it was built on top of iTunes and it was built on top of the I, the iPhone device. Like it, it took a lot of different things to come along before you could just roll out this next, uh, what did you call it? Um, not, not, uh, not wave, but the next big wave for developers to catch. Right. Is I think build I think it, it is building right now. It's just it hasn't it hasn't built. Like it's still accumulating. The, the the core infrastructure, the foundations, the platforms are still kind of coming together, and we don't know who's the best yet. Um, I in my personal experience, I think Amazon has the lead, but they also have the most basic dumb implementation. <laughs> the tube from Amazon is not that smart. It is a voice command line, which. As a geek, I'm, I'm kind of okay with, but I definitely noticed that my family members and uh, others struggle where they don't struggle with things like the Google Assistant or the Siri Tube because they, they are better at actually just understanding the way humans speak. And it's like we still have to see this whole thing play out before anything that's really going to go to market that sells it at, at a mass appeal wins. You know what I mean? Like the App Store... The App Store was able to leverage stuff that brought all this to regular humans. That was the big differentiator, is when mobile phones, yep. and particularly the iPhone and the App Store, became a real thing that everybody had, all of a sudden, everyone was playing games and installing apps. And before that, it was just us geeks. Like, the one of the biggest differences in my life growing up was I used to be the only person at a restaurant that would say the word web browser or TCP IP or Linux. And now I go out to eat and it is super, super common to hear a, a conversation at the table next to me where they're talking about hashtags and Twitter and Facebook and, and Google. Oh, for sure, for it's, sure. It's just, it's, 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 a, it's, it's completely changed in my lifetime. And the app store really, really wasn't the app store. It was getting good software in people's pockets. And, and the App Store and the Play Store facilitated that. But it, was, it wasn't that the geeks were so much smarter, that they had something in their DNA that enabled them to, to understand this stuff. It was simply that it just hadn't pushed through the next threshold. And I don't think we're there yet with the bots and the AI stuff. It's, it's close. The wave is building. But we just haven't pushed through that threshold where all the normals can get to it. See, one of my concerns, though, is that with the App Store era, I mean, Building complicated apps is, of course, complicated. I'm not trying to say it's not. But the work of building a really high-quality app is small enough that a team of one, two, or three could actually do it. 
My concern is with the kind of, you know, that staircase that I've described. Sure, maybe one person can write a pretty decent chatbot, but once you get into chatbot plus IoT getting more generalized, the resources required to, to really sit in on that poker game, I think are, are prohibitive to small teams, don't you? Hmm. Yes. Yeah, I do. Yeah, I, I really do. I think you're going to, yeah. Yeah, it's going to go, uh, anybody who's trying to provide the infrastructure that's not one of the big five or six is going to get replaced. It's gonna, they're just going to get run over like they didn't even exist. Like yourself, really. I mean, that's so that's Alice when I think about it. But like you could, well, actually it depends how, you know, how much of, if Alice is based on Microsoft technology on the back end, you kind of well positioned in a sense, because that's probably one of the waves that's going to be building. Like it's, if you had spent a decade in investing in speech recognition and text recognition right. and human interaction, you're so screwed right now. Well, I, I, so, but there's a couple challenges with that, right? One, you are licensing relatively expensive technology from another vendor, right? There are open source solutions. Uh, there's things like Open NLP, which can do natural yeah. language processing yeah. from yep. Apache. And the they Mozilla are stuff. Mozilla Voice. I mean, they tend to be much, much, much harder to work with. Um, see, the problem, let, let's just take Alice. The problem with Alice is that the, the dependency that scares me isn't Microsoft. It's actually Slack. Oh, because Slack could decide that they want Slackbot, which they have been, to be able to do more things. Sure, of course, they will. And they can just change the rules tomorrow. Huh. Yeah. And also the onboarding process for something like Alice is actually pretty tough still because this is an enterprise product. Um, I don't see if history repeats itself, which I think it will, it is not going to be particularly in Slack in particular, I think could be a, could be a threat because really what they're going to want is an entire, not just Slack as like a chat app. They're going to want the Slack work ecosystem, right? And you're starting to see stuff like this from them. I mean, one thing we've never mentioned on the show is Atlassian came out with Stride, which is a very, very powerful Slack competitor. Uh, Microsoft Teams is actually really, really good, yep, right? Yep, yep, With super tight integration to Office 365. But so, Slack has that momentum. They have that network effect. But I agree. There is other stuff well, in the market now. Well, they have the momentum on the small side. But the enterprise, like I, I'm working with an enterprise right now that because of weird limitations on how Slack does workspaces, they have to have like a dozen workspaces, which is not what you actually want, right? Because for lots of reasons about- <laughs> Oh, Slack yeah, wants they, it. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, no. No, I they they charge you per person. They don't care, right? Really, they're to my knowledge, they make no money other than per person. So like, it doesn't matter, right? You could have like five workspaces, uh, but the problem is you have to like be like logged into every workspace. Do, do you get what I'm saying? Ah, uh, yes, yeah, and that is such a pain in the ass. Now I understand if it's like, well, you know, if there's an argument to be made, like, well, if you you could do things differently and say, well, this is our engineering workspace. But the reality is like sometimes engineers need to talk to customer service. So now now the customer service people either have to log into the engineering workspace or the engineers have to log into customer service, right? Right. Um, I, I I mean, I we'll see. We can agree to disagree, but I, I wouldn't be shocked if Slack decides to look at Microsoft Teams and look at particularly Stride. Uh, Stride, which has very tight Jira integration, by the way, the whole Atlassian suite something that Alice is designed to do hmm. and say, gee, it would be nice if our built-in Slackbot did that 
better yeah. right? so we could keep people in our ecosystem. You know, I hadn't really given it thought, but it seems it seems really clear like that's the direction it's going to go, especially especially as they need to grow and they need to get more profitable, they need to get more revenue sources. They're going to want to lock they're going to want to become like a creativity suite or not a creativity suite. Uh, productivity suite, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like like your outlook of past. Right, it's going to be like you don't work with Slack as your chat app. It's You work in Slack. Yes, yeah. Yeah, I mean, their Google Drive integration is quite powerful now, right? They're adding, they're definitely going in that direction. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, I think that's a a particularly good insight on your part. I hadn't really given uh, it thought. so I so this is interesting that you mentioned me getting steamrolled, right? Because that is actually why I'm thinking about this focus thing. Because there is a world where the little guy like me more and more is going to be in, frankly, a lot more trouble, right? How so? Well, the monetization issues alone with these new platforms is, yeah. is enough to keep you up at night. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I think regulation, like the, what is it, the GDRP, yeah. is onerous to... To work with, yeah, right? yeah, it's it's almost like you need to have big companies take care of that stuff because it's just right, yeah, which means you're paying effectively taxes to big companies, right? You're paying tolls for everything you do. Um, I'm looking at sort of the things that are going to be really interesting going five to ten years forward, and I'm not seeing anything that's like really small that you can bite off and like own a space sure you can build an app you can build a bot that does something but just like we just demonstrated with alice the platform vendor can much faster and probably at less cost right because they have a lot of people or maybe not less cost but much quicker can quickly outstrip you on features and how they could throw you out too we didn't even mention that right they could just say you can't be here mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. or they sure lock yeah. you which basically I mean, anybody, makes you irrelevant you. yeah I mean, anybody who's like remembers Microsoft in the '90s, there are super secret APIs that only Microsoft can use for Windows, right? And if you're a third-party app developer, screw you. Like that kind of stuff happens all well, the time. Well, you remember when Camera Plus implemented taking a photo yep. with the uh, volume up button because there was a way to do that, and they got they got the shaft for a couple of months, and then later on, Apple just rolled that into the OS. Apple is notorious <laughs> at this kind of thing, right? Yes. Yeah, it's... It, I, I guess my, my primary concern... It's funny, because you, you do keep mentioning me getting rolled over. Who, me? No, but don't, I didn't say that. No. Yes, you do. You did this week, <laughs> last week, and the week before. Uh, well, maybe because you keep mentioning the HomePod. I mean, I don't know. Uh, I, that's fine. <laughs> but what, So you don't, you don't see the platform vendors as the risk? See, to me, that's, oh, that's no, actually I, the threat. I do. But the problem is, is uh, I look at I look at like the really large picture, and I see a couple of massive headwinds: uh, GDPR, net neutrality dying, and uh, yeah, and and really just the consolidation of really good uh, data sets where they can really train something or they can really analyze something, and you get into just a handful of companies that have that capability now, and uh, it's just simply like. This technology requires that you have a massive ecosystem of inputs, and uh, small businesses just are simply incapable of doing that. And uh, you know, it, it's just—it's um, sort of like—it's sort of like having nukes in a way, like Google and Amazon and uh, Microsoft and others have these 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 weapons of mass data that uh, 
There's just it's it startup startup countries and <laughs> couldn't couldn't possibly consider. You know what I'm saying? Like it's just well, it's it's a totally I mean, different playing field for them. Actually, nukes nukes is a great analogy, right? If you're a non-nuclear stake, any of the major powers in the world can invade you and occupy you at any point. Yeah. But once you have a nuke, right, which is like what North Korea is trying to do to avoid getting invaded, is you can now cause a lot of damage. Right? You you it, it it's basically you have a choice. you have a market advantage. Right. Well, you you have a moat though. It's actually protection. It's a defensive thing because you're not worth it. And th- honestly, that's what people try to do with patents, right? That is like a legitimate use of patents. But which purchasing is also, patents, which is, we could have also mentioned, plays into this too. Like again, an right. area where Google and Microsoft are way better positioned. Right, and a bunch of sleazy people who actually just exist to rip off the smaller players. Right. Which is a thing. So this went in the wrong direction. Uh, Remember how we were going to talk about focus? <laughs> Remember that? Focus into a bunker. Yeah, yeah. Oh, it's just, it's oh. it's interesting to think about because it's a, I think what you and I have identified is there is a transition afoot and uh, there is a market opportunity for some company to take advantage of, really. I think that's the core of what we've identified is like if it, when we're at episode 450 and we're looking back at what we were discussing in 303, we'll realize, oh, shit. Yeah. Remember that was back when we weren't sure how all of this was going to go because that X hadn't happened yet. That's what's yeah. that's how it's going to go down. That's how that's the only thing. But let's talk about Sun just because I, I know we're running out of time, but that's what we were here to do today. And I do want to talk also about Digital Ocean. Digital Ocean. In fact. Hot memo coming in here to the Coda Radio Studios right now. Thank you there, um, Bertrude. I don't, I don't, I don't know. Uh, go to do.co slash coder right now. Stop everything you're doing in your entire life and go to do.co slash coder for a $100 credit. $100. It lasts for 60 days once you apply, so you're off to the races. Now, DigitalOcean is simplicity at scale. You want to try out something, just an idea. DigitalOcean. You want to put it in production? DigitalOcean. You want to share it with a team? DigitalOcean. You want to use it just for yourself? DigitalOcean. Maybe just your family? DigitalOcean. That is really the sweet spot about DigitalOcean is they got stuff that's like three cents an hour. My favorite rig, three cents an hour. Up to systems with hundreds of gigs of RAM and the latest Xeon processors, really high-end stuff. It depends on just what you need. You can deploy an entire application stack or just the base system. And if you go to do.co slash coder for a limited time, you get that $100 credit. You can try out their new flexible droplets. New plans for $15 a month. You can mix and match the resources that are most appropriate for your app. Lots of disk or lots of CPU, try it out. And everything is SSD based. They have eight data centers around the world. The whole system is designed for developers with an easy to use control panel, an API that lets you spend more time coding and less time managing your infrastructure. You go from deploying to scaling within just a few clicks. Pre-built apps, global availability, optimized compute types, block storage, it's all available for DigitalOcean do.co slash coders go try it out spin up a system and give it a go you'll be really impressed with those data centers all over the world too you can pick something near you and it rocks do.co slash coders all right so last week we talked about 
Sun Microsystems a little bit. And um, there are some of you listening who have never really heard of Sun or or familiar with Sun. And so I wanted to play an ad for you from Sun Microsystems. Yes, I know it's crazy. I, I just cut out a part of it so that way you don't have to hear the whole thing. But I thought it would be useful, actually. It'd be good to hear how they positioned themselves in the market. What was their value? What did Sun Microsystems offer? And you'll get it from this ad. Well, a very impressive resume, Charles. You're one of our top candidates. Oh, well, <laughs> thank you. Since it's a high-profile position, allow me to be as candid with you as you've been with us. Uh, yeah, of course. Okay, you'll spend the bulk of your days in endless mind-numbing meetings with department after department whining about poor service levels and high cost. Your budget will be cut 20% while your workload increases 40%. Okay, uh, well, uh, nothing new so far. You'll have to manage terabytes of data pouring in from 10,000 servers, 18 websites, and 22 databases hosted on a mixed bag of platform servers and applications that can't possibly be integrated, scaled to meet demand, or be made secure. Back in your office, you'll wade through hundreds of invoices for service contracts that never end. Deadlines will slip, vacations will come and go, you'll never see your family again. You'll preach about lost productivity, rant about high costs, plead for a reliable integrated platform, and beg for best-in-class partners and an IT provider that you can actually trust. But eventually, you'll get the plan. The, the plan? Stop complaining, start sucking up, and spend eternity administrating the system. So what do you think? You want to work with us? So Sun Microsystems was founded on February 24th, 1982. So it's almost exactly as old as I am. And uh, Sun had a early idea that now seems normal, but it was very odd back in the day. And that was being weird was okay. Being being kind of funky, being unusual was okay. And uh, Sun didn't really see themselves as hardware providers so much as they saw themselves as total solution providers. Now, that sounds gimmicky, but they actually meant it. Like they built the Sun systems and they were based, they, they kind of rode that Unix wave during the pre and dot com boom. They, they were sort of known as like the Unix workstation. And you have to go back in time a little bit and you have to kind of understand that there was a debate between like what should the end user have at their desktop, like your engineer, your scientists, your developers, what should they have? And Sun played a pretty pivotal role in that debate saying they should have a powerful system that is very feature rich and networking built in. And that was really new back then. Everything from their first system had Ethernet. It was, you know, that was huge back in the day. And Sun also coined the term, the computer is the network. That was early day stuff. So, I mean, we think of Sun now as Java, right? When you say Sun, you think right. Java. But uh, they, they, they did a lot of stuff. I mean, Java is probably the biggest impact that we talk about on this show, don't you think? Uh, I was thinking about that. Is, is Java the biggest thing for the show? Maybe. Probably. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, 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 part of me wants to fly 20,000 feet in the air and say, actually, the idea that like most developers and engineers would be using a Unix workstation. And I'm using most because that may or may not be true, right? A lot of people could be using Windows. Yeah. Yeah. 
it, it was a different time, right? See, this is one of the problems we're talking about, son. It was a radical. No one was really arguing about like a DOS workstation. <laughs> no, no, not seriously, like, right? DOS- not like in the scientific or engineering community. Right. Yeah, right. It was, DOS was like for the the office workers in a lot of ways, right? Remember, there was the whole thing about like business computing versus uh, right. Uh, yeah. So I, I I would say that Sun yeah I think you're right Sun brought the idea that what were originally technologies for engineers and scientists could actually be useful to a wide array of other uh, what we what we would now call knowledge workers. Hmm. Yep. I completely agree. Yeah. Yeah. It's totally different now, but yeah, that is exactly it. And Sun honed in early on on a couple of key areas. Uh, They figured out you wanted something super reliable to run on the servers and you wanted something very powerful and networkable on the workstation. And then you needed some kind of middle layer between all of that. I mean, it seems... It seems obvious now it's fa- on its face, but this was all done by Sun, and they they only got to like thirty eight thousand employees at their at their total peak in two thousand six. Sort of Sun's like peak peak Sun Microsystems. They had thirty eight thousand employees, um, which is a drop in the bucket now compared to Apple or Amazon or Microsoft or Google. Just a drop in the <laughs> that's tiny. I mean, um, I'm not even joking. I'm this is this is so crazy. But uh, if you take Microsoft's worldwide operation, they probably have 10,000 to 15,000 janitors. And Sun had, they're at their peak, at their very peak, at peak Sun Microsystems, 38,000. <laughs> okay. So there's your, there's your perspective of how early this was, right? This is way, this is way early on in the IT industry. Yeah, I'm trying to find a really good picture of like a operating Sun workstation, but I can't. But just to show you how, di- for the listeners, maybe we can find one later, how different the just the landscape of like what you would be using for your workstation was, right? Yeah, I got a picture up on the video stream right now. They had the uh, CDE environment, which is sort of what KDE is inspired from. Um, they had the CDE environment, and I had limited but uh, multi-year experience with it because, uh, I, as everybody knows, has listened to the show. I worked for a bank, the largest independent financial institution in Washington State, and they printed checks right there on premises. And because you're printing balance statements and you're printing checks and you're printing like you're over you're over, you've overdrafted like really official legal documents from banks like you want this to be done right and these these print jobs are coming in from uh, 45 different branch locations the only system that could do this at the time were these spark workstations from sun microsystems in part because they had the um uh, was it LPD? I can't remember the line print daemon. I think uh, they had they were they were one of the first ones to ship that. They were the one of the first ones to ship Ethernet, and they were one of the first ones to ship a, a workstation OS where you could manage all the stuff that didn't crash constantly. It was them and OS two, <laughs> and and so you had you had you had uh, Sun's Unix running on C with CDE running on top of that, connected to these massive, massively huge Xerox printers that would incorporate the entire computer system into these huge printers where they could just just boom, 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 print out these statements. Totally yeah. different. Totally different now. Totally different world. And and they looked, uh, they you had these, yeah, they just looked, they had different keyboards. Like they just, there were a totally different genre of computing too. Um, 
Well, they weren't even considered, right? They were considered, like, the term workstation was like a formal designation of what these were. Yeah, yeah, exactly, yes. Right, like a computer was considered like a DOS computer, a PC, or or like an Apple II, right? Right, and a workstation wasn't just a computer with more horsepower. A workstation was a totally different built system that might have an entirely different internet connect bus. Uh, It might have a totally different operating system and monitors. Yeah. That that that's that's a good point. Um, and you know there was like this like this momentum that they had for a long time. Uh, in '96, they built a they they bought like a huge huge chunk of Cray uh, supercomputer systems. Uh, they bought Encore computers in '97. They started buying up like different uh, like uh, software companies. Uh, they bought Star Division in '99. They bought MaxRat in '99 as well. Also, uh, Teamware. And in 1999, they bought what is essentially NetBeans uh, modular uh, Java IDE, which eventually they started developing into a way for people to create Java applications. And they just kept going. Like Sun Microsystems just kept collecting companies over the years. They tried out, like, uh, they tried expanding beyond Spark systems. They moved over to x86 and AMD systems in particular. Uh, but the thing that really, I think, uh, the thing that really survives is Java in part because of Oracle, in a way. I mean, they were acquired by Oracle. Well, I think, I think, so this is, I think a lot of Sun's technology survived because of their uh, creative use of open source, right? Well, yeah, yeah, in the last years, that's true. Yeah, that is true. So, I mean, they made it, they made it until February, I mean, they made it for, they made it, uh, I can't remember, was it, uh, yeah, January, it was January 27th is when they... Wow, the day after my birthday is when they went defunct. <laughs> That's crazy. They started the year I was born, and they went defunct the day after my birthday. Anyways, Oracle bought them and definitely doubled down on the Java stuff. But this whole Google versus Oracle uh, lawsuit that we are now looking at is really Oracle just fighting over the stuff that they bought from Sun. And I've maintained since the day Oracle bought, literally since the day Oracle bought Sun, I've maintained on air that it's simply... They knew Google crossed a line, and that's one of the reasons they bought Sun, is they bought Sun because they knew there was this lawsuit payoff, and that's why Oracle is pursuing it so, um, what's the right word, viciously? Like, that's why they're going after this, because this is going to pay for their well, no, that was a, That was a common theory running around, right? That Sun sold itself to Oracle kind of with the wink. We've got this. Much. Yeah, we've got we this think, information. You know, yep. well, yeah, I mean, Oracle... I, you know what? We've said enough about Oracle and and Google for one day. Yeah, that's true. Um, I, w- one thing that's interesting before we go, and I know we're over on time, Java was re- invented by a man named James Gosling, and it was originally called Oak, actually. It's yeah. rather evolved out of Oak, another language he invented at Sun. Do you know what the original application was without looking at the notes I wrote? Mm, I don't remember anymore, no. It was uh, originally invented to code set top tv box. oh yeah Crash. yes i yeah. did know that Those yes awful much things so. you get from the from comcast <laughs> yep yep i remember that oh man because this was really the revolutionary thing about java is that it was a portable language right at, at that time there were very few really portable languages and portable not meaning like mac windows although that is the case but meaning portable architectures right processor architectures yeah, and and that was what was super appealing, right? That was one of the early that was the killer reason to use Java. Right? One of the early promises of write once and run everywhere. Not the first, but one of the early ones that really got a lot of traction. Couldn't have said it better myself. Play All right, it All right Mr. Dominic. Well, that does bring us to the end of this week's Coda Radio program. 
Mr. Dominic, where would you like to send people throughout the week to get a little more of you? Uh, at Dumanuku on Twitter. There you go. And you can follow me. I'm at ChrisLAS. Why don't you join us live? If you can, make it, and we'd appreciate it. You can join us in the chat room. Just go over to jblive.tv on a Monday or check jupiterbroadcasting.com slash calendar for when we do this here show live. Go to coder.show to get this show every single week and coder.show slash RSS for the direct feed. Thanks for joining us. See you next week.